what's happening in the world right now coming up on NTD News. First, our top stories. Mike Pence kicks off his presidential campaign in Iowa, a rare moment in American history for a former VP to run against his previous partner. Find out what voters have to say. Over a dozen states have issued air quality alerts as smoke from Canadian wildfires wafts into U.S. cities. Officials warn residents to stay indoors. House Republicans say they want to protect gas stoves, but political infighting this week keeps them from making good on that promise. We'll show you what's happening. The Ukraine dam destruction is making wheat and corn prices soar, and we take a look at a theory behind the attack. Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Our top news is that former Vice President Mike Pence has made his presidential bid official. In his campaign video, the 64-year-old took aim at President Biden, but didn't name former President Trump. President Joe Biden and the radical left have weakened America at home and abroad. The American dream is being crushed under runaway inflation. Wages are dropping. Recession is looming. Our southern border is under siege and the enemies of freedom are on the march around the world. And it'd be easy to stay on the sidelines. But that's not how I was raised. That's why today, before God and my family, I'm announcing I'm running for president of the United States. Pence served under Trump, but later turned away from him after the 2021 Capitol breach. It's rare in American history for a vice president to take on their former running mate, but Pence promises a different leadership and quotes Lincoln in his hope to appeal to the better angels of our nature. Pence plans to hold a kickoff event later today near Des Moines, Iowa. Our reporter Chris Spears is on site to bring us more from voters. Thank you, Kevin. I'm here at Mike Pence's campaign launch event at Des Moines Area Community College, just outside of Des Moines, Iowa, the capital of the state where presidential candidates come to make their bid early on. Now, the GOP field is growing more crowded by the day, and any candidate that wants to win the nomination is going to have to steal some of the thunder away from Donald Trump. Let's hear from voters about Mike Pence's chances. Have you, have you made up your mind? Are you going to vote for Pence? I am 90% for Pence. Who else are you looking at right now? I like Tim Scott. I like Nikki Haley, Chris Christie, Doug Burgum, or kind of kind of everyone, but 90% Pence. What kind of a chance do you think Pence has at winning this uh, nomination? I think if there's a chance, it starts here in Iowa. Besides that, I think it might be hard to break through if he doesn't do good here. In conclusion, any candidate that wants to steal Donald Trump's thunder is going to have to start a type of movement. We'll keep you posted about what happens here today at about 6 p.m. at the evening show. Back to you, Kevin. All right. And in other news, farm labor unions in California could get a boost in membership. That's with new election rules that unions say will make it easier for workers to organize. The new, provision, the new revisions keep in place a card check system favored by unions that allows workers to sign a card authorizing a union to represent them in collective bargaining. A mail-in system would have required employees to contact unions and request voting kits to participate in elections. Proponents say unions like to organize under the card check system. It allows them to have face-to-face conversations with workers and they can sell the benefits of joining a union. Critics say it violates farm workers' right to a secret vote and could make it easier for unions to coerce and intimidate workers during election, union elections. 
CNN's parent company fires CNN CEO Chris Licht a year after he took the position. The head of Warner Brothers Discovery made the announcement and says a four-person team will run CNN in the interim. CNN has endured falling ratings and missteps. Licht apologized to CNN employees days ago after Atlantic Magazine published a damaging profile story on him. He said he never meant to overshadow others at the network. Licht was hired after former CNN leader Jeff Zucker left on accusations of having an inappropriate relationship. But May primetime viewership ratings at CNN were less than half of those at rival MSNBC. Even though CNN's town hall with Donald Trump reached 3.3 million viewers, primetime viewership fell to just 330,000 afterwards. Millions of Americans in the Midwest and the Northeast are facing hazardous air quality. Smoke is moving south from more than 100 wildfires burning in Canada. At least 13 states have issued air quality alerts as smoke blocked the skyline in some areas. The National Weather Service also sent out warnings for over a dozen states, including New York, Vermont, and New Hampshire, as well as Pennsylvania. Authorities said hazy skies, reduced visibility, and the odor of burning wood are likely, and that the smoke will linger for a few days in northern states. Yesterday, New York's air quality rating was ranked as the worst of any city in the world. Mayor Eric Adams held a briefing on the city's response this morning. We could see it, we could smell it, and we felt it. And it was alarming and concerning. But at the moment, we recommend vulnerable New Yorkers stay inside. And all New Yorkers should limit outdoor activity to the greatest extent possible. Uh, This is not the day to train for a marathon or to do an outside event with your children. New York City public schools canceled all outdoor activities Wednesday due to an air quality alert. The city school system has more than 2,000 public and charter schools serving upwards of a million students. New Jersey's governor is also warning people to limit time outdoors. On to politics, the Biden administration is expected to soon finalize rules restricting gas stoves. House Republicans this week tried to prevent that, but political infighting among them prevented progress. Here's what happened. The Department of Energy, or DOE, last year proposed rules to restrict which gas stoves consumers will be able to purchase in the future. Democrats say they want to make sure new gas stoves do not lead to carbon monoxide poisoning or put children at risk of developing asthma. Republicans accused the Biden administration of wanting to ban gas stoves altogether. The White House on Tuesday issued this statement saying it does not support any attempt to ban the use of gas stoves. However, Republican Congresswoman Debbie Lesko on Tuesday pointed out that while not completely banning gas stoves, the proposed rules will eliminate 100% of freestanding gas stoves and 96% of gas stove cooktops that are currently available on the market today. She says that's why she introduced the Save Our Gas Stoves Act. In total, House Republicans introduced two bills protecting gas stoves, and the House was supposed to vote on those bills this week. However, political infighting prevented the votes from happening. They first had to vote on a resolution to establish floor vote rules on the two bills, and that resolution failed by a 220 to 206 vote. Twelve Republicans voted alongside Democrats, including Matt Gates of Florida, Chip Roy of Texas, and others. Gates explained that they did so in a revolt against House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, telling reporters, Today we took down the rule because we're frustrated at the way this place is operating. We took a stand in January to end the era of the imperial speakership. 
were concerned that the fundamental commitments that allowed Kevin McCarthy to assume the speakership have been violated as a consequence of the debt limit deal. Gates says Republican leadership is punishing representatives who voted against the debt ceiling bill, and that Congressman Clyde was told that his legislation regarding pistol braces wouldn't be voted on this week as a punishment for his debt ceiling vote. Congresswoman Lauren Boebert said on the topic that they want to fundamentally change the way Congress operates. And as lawmakers grapple with energy policy, we're going to take you over to Europe now. One day after the collapse of a major dam in Ukraine, authorities are warning of floating mines, the spread of disease, and hazardous chemicals. Authorities there are trying to provide drinking water for tens of thousands of people. Ukraine warned on Wednesday that over 40,000 people are at risk from flooding after the collapse of a major dam. While inspecting flooded areas, Ukraine's infrastructure minister said over 80 settlements had been affected by a disaster, which Ukraine and Russia blame on each other. Authorities say hundreds of thousands of people are left without normal access to drinking water. Wherever necessary, we'll bring drinking water with cisterns of the Ukrainian railways and with cars. This operation is already ongoing. About wells, we believe that the military civilian administrations need to do this as fast as possible. The regional governor said the floods had reached the depth of nearly 18 feet in some places of Kherson, a large city nearly 40 miles downstream from the destroyed dam. In Kherson, residents set up makeshift embarkation points for dinghies that police, rescue workers and volunteers are now using to get around. Kiev is warning of the danger posed by floating mines, unearthed by flooding, and the spread of disease and hazardous chemicals. Meanwhile, Ukraine's military said its troops stormed Russian positions held near Bakhmut on Tuesday. The deputy defense minister said Ukraine advanced as close as 600 feet on parts of the front around the devastated eastern city. But a Ukrainian senior security official insisted the country had not yet launched a planned counteroffensive to win back territory occupied by Russia. Continuing with the dam, global prices for wheat and corn have soared since it collapsed in Ukraine. Entity's Daniel Monahan has more on that and analysis on the dam's destruction. The destruction of the Kokovka Dam has raised concerns about food supply disruptions to developing nations. Ukraine and Russia are both major agricultural suppliers. The war's disruption to their exports worsened a global food crisis tied to droughts and other factors. Agreements brokered by the UN and Turkey last year got food moving again through the Black Sea. But there have been setbacks. Joseph Glauber from the International Food Policy Research Institute reacted. So I think that's what the trade is really concerned about is ultimately what does it mean for the Black Sea Grain Agreement. The dam collapse has also threatened drinking water supplies and officials warn of a looming environmental disaster. Russia and Ukraine have both blamed each other for the dam's destruction. The disaster coincided with the apparent start of a long-awaited counteroffensive by Ukrainian forces. Media personality Tucker Carlson weighed in on the dam destruction in the first episode of his new show on Twitter. The Kokovka Dam was effectively Russian. It was built by the Russian government. It currently sits in Russian-controlled territory. The dam's reservoir supplies water to Crimea, which has been, for the last 240 years, home of the Russian Black Sea Fleet. Carlson says Ukraine has considered destroying the dam in the past. In December, the Washington Post quoted a Ukrainian general saying his men had fired American-made rockets at the dam's floodgate as a test strike. Carlson also accused Ukraine of blowing up the Nord Stream pipelines last fall. 
And the Washington Post reported on Tuesday that the U.S. learned of a Ukrainian plot to attack the pipelines three months before they were damaged. It says the CIA learned that a six-person team of Ukrainian special operations forces intended to blow up the Russia to Germany project. The intelligence report was shared online on Discord, allegedly by Air National Guard member Jack Teixeira, who was arrested in April. The Washington Post said it obtained a copy from one of Teixeira's online friends. Ukraine has previously denied responsibility for the Nord Stream attack. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. On to some economics after the break. Markets are trying to predict whether the Federal Reserve will raise interest rates next week. What are the chances? UPS workers are voting on whether they will consider a strike if negotiations don't go through. We'll have more for you in just a moment here on NTD News Today. Welcome back. We're continuing with a discussion on the economy. Goldman Sachs has lowered its projected chances that the U.S. will fall into a recession. That follows the passage of the debt limit deal and now says the nation has a 25% chance, whereas right after the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, it was 35%. Let's hear some analysis on this. Joining me now is Joseph Trevisani, senior analyst at FX Street. I'm really looking forward to our discussion, Joseph. Thank you. Nice to have you. How has the debt ceiling deal impacted the chances of a recession? Well, the things that get factored in when you're looking long term for a recession, certainly the debt ceiling and the possibility, however remote, is something that uh, forecasters have to take into consideration. Now that that's off the table, under the table, gone out the door, whatever you'd like to say, you can remove that factor and that small change has its effect on your long term view of a recession big jobs report out. What do you think this strong job market signals in terms of the U.S. economy and chances for the recession? Well, the job market relates directly to consumer spending. Consumer spending has been up and down, but on the whole, it has held up pretty well. Um, certainly personal spending has in the last report is 0.8% as opposed to an expected 0.4%. As long as people in the U.S. economy, as everyone knows, is consumer driven. It's consumer spending driven. As long as consumers have jobs, as long as they feel that if they change jobs or lose jobs, they will be able to find a new one, spending does not seem to falter. One of the things that is an eternal fact of the U.S. economy is don't bet against the U.S. consumer. And we are seeing that again now. People like shopping. What do you think that this chances of recession is going to mean in terms of inflation? Well, I don't think, it, it, interestingly enough, inflation has not had a great deal of effect on consumers, on consumer spending. And I think the reason is because consumers largely view it as transitory. I know that's the word from the Fed that got a lot of bad press when they were using it a year and a half and two years ago. Nonetheless, the consumer's view and the Fed's view, although wrong in the time frame, has been right in effect. Consumer inflation has come down considerably. And Joseph, I want to reference influential economist Daniel Akaya. He wrote, what no central bank wants to tell you is that the only way in which inflation can be brought down significantly is a recession. Often recessions do cool inflation, but are there other ways to bring down these high prices? 
the, the, the classical view of uh, central bank's rate policy in relation to inflation is that it's necessary to bring on a recession to reduce consumer spending. That's the classical view. But if there's anything that's been true over the past three years since the pandemic and the lockdowns is that none of those classical views have really turned out to be true because of the unusual situation of a government-fostered recession in 2020. So I'm not so sure that it is necessary to foster a recession to complete the, uh, the decline in, in inflation. Just briefly, I want to get your thoughts here. This is what Mark Zandi at Moody said. The U.S. economy is resilient despite the banking crisis, rate hikes, and the debt ceiling. What's your thoughts on this? I think he's correct. And I don't often agree with Mr. Zandi, but in this case, I think he is correct. The banking crisis, banking crisis was a, a, a tempest in a teapot, if you will. It really did not signal, nor was it caused by a systemic problem as you had back in 2008, when so many of the large banks and others had very questionable assets on their books. This was not the case. This was very much a localized and a sort of classic bank run for worried depositors who were over the $250,000 limit. So as far as the recession goes, it doesn't seem to be materializing. A lot of moving parts here. We'll see what happens. Joseph Trevisani, senior analyst at FX Street. It's always great hearing from you. Thank you for having me. Investors are awaiting the Federal Reserve's policy meeting next week. The question for many is whether Fed officials will keep the interest rate where it is or whether they'll raise it again. Here's Don Ma with NTD Business. All right, thank you, Kevin. Now, will the Fed keep interest rates steady at the next meeting or will officials raise rates by another 25 basis points? One group of Fed officials would like to pause their campaign of rate increases after 10 straight hikes to allow time to look around and assess whether higher borrowing rates are slowing inflation down. Meanwhile, another group still sees inflation to be too high and sees another one or two hikes to be appropriate beginning next week. And here to talk to me is Tavi Costa, Portfolio Manager at Crescat Capital. Now, the big question uh, a lot of investors are wondering right now is, will the Fed hike or pause at the next meeting? You know, as a portfolio manager yourself, what, what do you think? That's a good question. I, I'm also struggling to answer that question. I think right now in the markets is about probability of 30% of increase. I would say that um, I think it's more a lot closer to 50-50% personally. That's the way I see it. Um, I don't know if that matters as much as the market thinks it does, meaning I think just the fact that interest rates will stay where they are and continue to stay where they are, it will, in my opinion, uh, unleash even more pressure in, in some parts of the market. And you said something interesting on Twitter. Uh, the government is sort of undoing what the Fed is doing with their inflation fight. I, I want you to ex uh, elaborate on that because the Fed is trying to tighten monetary condition. Meanwhile, the government's aggressive fiscal policy is going in the opposite direction. Can you talk a little bit about that? That's precisely correct, in my opinion. Undoing it because government deficits are at levels, first of all, relative to how low unemployment rate is, we've never seen such an aggressive fiscal policy. So, you know, if you think about it, um, fiscal policy is supposed to be uh, more excessive at times when you are in the middle of a turmoil where unemployment rates are uh, historically high, you've got a recession, 
already in place and so forth. And so the government spending increases in order to uh, an attempt to fix the problem. And I don't think we're seeing that today. What we're seeing is large fiscal policy not related to a recessionary problem that has caused government to, to spend more. In fact, what's happening here is just the, uh, a reflection of how extended, extensive is the, the fiscal agenda. You've got social programs to a degree that we haven't seen in the last decades. You've got really the Green Revolution being part of that, the infrastructure developments occurring as a way to avoid China reliance, Chinese reliance and Russian reliance and other authoritarian regimes that we've been dependent on, um, and military spending, which is historical lows currently that are likely to continue to rise uh, to levels that we've seen in the 60s or so, which were about 9% of GDP, and today is less than 3%. I see. All right, thank you so much today, Tavi. Always great speaking to you. Thanks for having me. Some Fed officials think that pausing rate hikes to ensure that the Fed doesn't go too far might help achieve the tantalizing prospect of a soft landing. This is the hoped-for scenario in which the Fed would manage to tame inflation without causing a recession, or at least not a very deep one. Back to you, Kevin. All right. 340,000 UPS workers are voting on whether or not they will be willing to strike. They have given UPS management until August 1st to come up with a contract. The union representing the workers plans to announce the results of the vote on June 16th. Strike votes are common during contract negotiations, but if agreements stall and a strike begins, it would be the largest ever in U.S. history. The strike would include delivery drivers and package sorters. Negotiations for a new contract began in April. The union is primarily seeking higher pay and more benefits, as well as air-conditioned delivery trucks. Taking you to some local news here, addressing a challenge the nation is facing, New York City unveils its first public health vending machine, a machine offering everything from free drugs that can reverse a fentanyl overdose to free crack pipes. Officials with the city's Department of Health and Mental Hygiene welcomed the machine to Brooklyn. It's part of the city's fight to reduce overdose deaths. Mail Online reported that less than 24 hours after the machine was unveiled, it was empty. The city's health commissioner says the city is in the midst of an overdose crisis, which takes the life of a New Yorker every three hours. The vending machine is the first of four that will be installed in New York City neighborhoods with the highest overdose rates. Some of the machines might carry needles used to inject illegal drugs. City Councilwoman Joanne Ariola condemned the move on Twitter, writing that the city shouldn't be co-modifying addiction and fueling addicts. She says the money could be better spent on drug rehabilitation services. And just ahead, more findings on TikTok's ties with Beijing. A newly obtained code sample shows that China-based engineers worked on the app's source code. The UK government has ordered the Chinese embassy in London to close its unofficial police service stations in the country. We'll have those details for you in just a minute. Welcome back. Chinese Communist Party leader Xi Jinping has a message for China's top national security officials. He says prepare for worst-case scenarios. Let's learn more about what those could be and what this means for Americans. 
Joining me now is retired Marine Colonel Grant Newsham, who's also a senior fellow at the Center for Security Policy and author of the new book, When China Attacks, A Warning to America. Grant, it's always great having you on the show. Well, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. What do you think are these worst-case scenarios and stormy seas that Chinese regime leader Xi Jinping is talking about? Well, I think he's talking about going to war. Uh, it could be sort of a big war, or small war, the use of force somewhere. Uh, wouldn't surprise me if Taiwan was in the crosshairs. Uh, but I would take what uh, Xi Jinping is saying very seriously. Uh, he has been, uh, for a while now, has been trying to sanction-proof uh, China, uh, economically, financially, uh, in terms of uh, building coal-powered uh, energy, uh, uh, energy plants, uh, one after the other. He's trying to isolate uh, China from the effects uh, that will will happen if he does uh, use force somewhere. Uh, so as I say, I would take him very seriously. He's been taking uh, measures to uh, improve their ability to call up reserve forces, to replace combat casualties. And you're seeing the People's Liberation Army uh, conducting really rehearsals for Taiwan going back uh, almost a year now. I expect the third part of those rehearsals to take place in the fall. We have seen the effects of sanctions on Russia. And speaking of Taiwan, PLA General Li Shangfu threatened that China will attack any nation that splits it from Taiwan. In his speech, he talks about harmony and not imposing one's own will on others. But many see this as inconsistent in China's actions towards Taiwan. What are your reaction here? Well, it is inconsistent uh, from our perspective. Uh, note, of course, that nobody has ever talked about attacking China ever. You know, I'm glad to wait here for a good long while for someone to name somebody. Uh, but China does come at the uh, their situation from a different perspective, and they have convinced themselves and may genuinely believe that they are being encircled, uh, they're being bullied uh, by the rest of the world, by the Americans in particular. Uh, so you do have to consider China's perspective in all of this. You know, we may disagree with it. It may, in fact, be wrong. But that doesn't mean that they don't believe it. And there's always a rote reaction on so the, the Western side to say, well, they would just never use violence. It's, they're just acting out. They're just talking. It just couldn't happen. Well, remember uh, that people said, well, uh, Vladimir Putin will never attack Ukraine. It just couldn't happen. And that was the common wisdom. So I would take the Chinese very seriously uh, when they threaten to use violence. Grant, what does Xi Jinping's rhetoric mean for the United States? Well, it means that, you know, we'd better take it seriously and we had better get uh, our military in order, be ready to respond. And I'm not sure that we've actually thought this through the way that we need to. I think the military probably has, but I'm not sure the White House has. Uh, that's not unusual. Uh, we need to get our financial house in order and we need to do something about this uh, chaos that we've got in our political world and also uh, to be very useful uh, if we <clears throat> stopped funding the People's Republic of China. And we've got to get this just unchecked investment that American business, that Wall Street is pouring into China that is effectively propping up uh, Xi Jinping's uh, war machine. You've got to get a handle on that. And if you don't, well, you've reduced your odds of success uh, considerably. Retired Marine Colonel Grant Newsham, it's always great to have your analysis. My pleasure. Thanks very much. 
A new report on TikTok's China ties. The app's source code has been written by engineers based in China. That's according to a code sample obtained by an Australian newspaper. TikTok has been downplaying ties with its Chinese owner, ByteDance, especially amid Western bans of the video sharing app. But a code sample recently seen by the Australia's Financial Review may defeat that effort. The sample appears to control broadcasting and moderation of live streaming. It shows at least a dozen usernames with email addresses linked to ByteDance. Sources that the Financial Review did not disclose confirmed that many of these engineers worked in mainland China. James Patterson is Australia's shadow minister for home affairs and cybersecurity. He said the code sample shows that engineers working on it in China can access user data and are captured by the intelligence and security laws of the Chinese Communist Party. Under its national intelligence law, Beijing can force all entities and citizens to cooperate with so-called national intelligence efforts. Patterson warned that the CCP can also compel TikTok staff to suppress or elevate pro-Beijing content or sow division within Western democracies. In July 2022, TikTok Australia admitted that its employees in China could access Australian user data. Over two dozen U.S. states have banned the video sharing app on government devices. Last month, Montana passed a new law further banning its use on personal devices. The U.K. government said it has ordered the Chinese embassy in London to shut down any so-called police service stations in Britain. Security Minister Tom Tugendhat said police have visited each of the identified locations of the alleged Chinese outposts. He said so far, no evidence of illegal activity has been found. The Chinese police stations were opened worldwide unbeknownst to the governments of the host countries. Three such stations were identified in the U.K., associated with a food delivery business and an estate agent in London and a Chinese restaurant in Glasgow. The Chinese regime said the outposts were set up to perform administrative tasks, but NGO Safeguard Defenders has alleged some stations had helped to coerce targets to return to China. And more world news coming up. NATO is preparing to hold its largest ever air defense exercise involving 10,000 troops from 25 nations. Researchers find lockdowns failed on their promise to significantly reduce COVID deaths. Get that story in just a minute. Welcome back. NATO is preparing for its largest ever air defense exercise. Officials say it would be a show of force intended to impress allies and potential adversaries such as Russia. The Air Defender 23 exercise starting next week in Germany will involve 10,000 service members and 250 aircraft from 25 nations. The U.S. alone is sending 2,000 Air National Guard personnel and about 100 aircraft. The drill is simulating the response to an attack on a NATO member country. While the exercise was planned for several years, Russia's invasion of Ukraine has jolted NATO into preparing for the possibility of an attack on its territory. Sweden, which is hoping to join the alliance, and Japan are also taking part in the exercise. The United States yesterday imposed sanctions on more than a dozen entities and people in China, Hong Kong, and Iran over accusations they helped Iran develop a hypersonic ballistic missile. Iran yesterday presented what officials described as its first domestically made hypersonic ballistic missile. The head of its aerospace force said the missile has a range of almost 900 miles and can evade the U.S. and Israel's anti-missile systems. 
Hypersonic missiles can fly at least five times faster than the speed of sound, which makes them difficult to intercept. However, Iran's claims about the capabilities of the missile cannot be independently verified. We're going to move on from international security to hindsight on the pandemic. Back in March 2020, Imperial College London predicted COVID-19 lockdowns would save more than 2 million lives in the United States. But a new study finds they prevented just 4,000 deaths in the U.S. while imposing severe economic and social costs. The study authors label lockdowns a global policy failure of gigantic proportions. NTD's Jane Worrell has the details. Stay-at-home mandates, closed businesses, and confusion over complicated rules. Lockdowns might feel like a distant memory, but did they really work? Researchers from Johns Hopkins University and Lund University sifted through almost 20,000 studies on COVID-19 restrictions across different countries. They concluded lockdowns failed to significantly reduce COVID deaths. However, co-author of the study, Jonas Herbie, says voluntary changes in behaviour did have an effect. So our study doesn't say that social or uh, physical distancing doesn't work. I, I'm, I'm, I truly believe that it, it works uh, when there's a pandemic. It just shows that what people do voluntarily is the main uh, effect you get. Uh, and then the states, what the states can do on top of that is very limited. Imperial College London modelling in early 2020 predicted lockdowns would save more than 2 million lives in the US and over 400,000 lives in the UK. But this study concluded lockdowns prevented only 4,000 deaths in the United States and 6,000 deaths across Europe. That's relatively few deaths compared to a typical flu season. The study authors call COVID lockdowns a global policy failure of gigantic proportions. Professor David Payton says the costs for society far outweigh the benefits. We know they have very, very large costs. Now, we might you know, excuse politicians who are panicking a bit, perhaps early in the pandemic and trying to follow suit across countries. But looking back, I think it's reasonable to say that those lockdowns and government interventions were a really you know, poor policy intervention in terms of the low benefits and high costs that they had. When lockdowns were being implemented, UK lawmaker Sir Graham Brady was one of those who raised concerns. Now we're seeing the results of serious academic studies suggesting the amount of good done by lockdowns was virtually none at all. Uh, we are nonetheless every day seeing evidence of the massive harms that were caused in other aspects of people's lives. He said lockdowns have had a particularly serious impact on children and young people. Young people going to university and not being allowed to attend lectures and having to do everything virtually and online. Uh, these have got very real consequences, both in educational performance uh, outcomes uh, and also in terms of mental health for young people. Imperial College London didn't respond with a comment. Jane Worrell, NTD News, London. We got some pop culture and history coming up. A Croatian city featured in the Game of Thrones faces a surge in tourism. Find out what locals are doing to manage the number of visitors. A new gallery opens in Madrid in June, showing off the finest treasures from centuries of Spanish kings and part of the city's original wall. Stay tuned for that coverage in just a moment.
Good to have you back with us. A Croatian town featured in the Game of Thrones is trying to tackle a surge in tourism. Locals are calling the congestion over-tourism. NTD's Andrew Thomas reports that summer is coming. Dubrovnik lies on Croatia's breathtaking Adriatic coast, but the picturesque city is facing the challenge of over-tourism. More than 1.2 million visited the UNESCO World Heritage Site in 2019. I just checked it now and it was 4,026 uh, half an hour ago, which is a number which is good, which is a number which is acceptable, which is a number that doesn't do big crowds in the old town. Dubrovnik was featured in the hit HBO series Game of Thrones. Now it's implemented a number of measures to manage tourism. They include a daily visitor limit and a tourist tax. First of all, uh, the number, for instance, of the cruise ships per day is limited now to 4,000 people. Uh, the, the, the hours that they are staying, uh, the length of their stay in Dubrovnik port is much uh, the, uh, longer now. Dubrovnik's tourism industry is still a major contributor to the local economy. Uh, the other thing that we have, for instance, is the visitor's uh, counter, uh, cameras uh, that are put around the old town, with, which help us uh, know, knowing the number, uh, the exact number of, of visitors. At any Despite the new measures, Dubrovnik remains a popular destination. The city's stunning architecture, rich cultural heritage, and beautiful coastline continue to draw visitors. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Let's go back in time with a new gallery that is almost ready for its much-anticipated opening in Madrid. Construction of the state-of-the-art gallery took 25 years and even uncovered part of the Moorish Wall from the 19th century. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the latest. Next month, Spain is set to open the Royal Collections Gallery. The new museum in Madrid will feature paintings, tapestries, sculptures, and more. This is the biggest museum project in Spain in decades, and also in Europe, because it is an enormous project. And what it means is being able to show the collections of the kings of Spain over five centuries, five centuries of history and very diverse collections. The inaugural exhibition will feature 650 pieces. Visitors can expect works by Goya, Caravaggio, El Greco, and others. With this coexistence of such extraordinary pieces told through such a clear chronological resource, it really turns the gallery into a museum of museums, where sometimes it reminds us, like this room, of the sister institution that is the Prado Museum. Other times it reminds us of the importance of the monastery El Escorial. The gallery building itself is an impressive work of art. The museum's narrow vertical linear structure has won 10 architectural awards. But there's another reason why the gallery is special. During the building's construction, archaeologists came across part of the city's Arab wall. During the construction of the Royal Collections Gallery, a very important archaeological find was made because part of the Emirate Wall of Madrid was uncovered. Madrid was founded in the mid-9th century by the Emir of Cordoba, Muhammad I. This Emir wanted to build a network of fortifications covering Toledo, and one of these fortifications was Madrid. The discovery provides a glimpse into 9th century Madrid. 
We had carried out a very important technical exercise in archaeology and the reconstruction of the history of Madrid on this site. So with an audio-visual presentation, we are going to see what Madrid was like initially, what happened in the 9th century with the Muslims, what happened afterwards. King Felipe VI and Queen Leticia will inaugurate the museum on June 28th. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Coming up next, from rare Hermes handbags to Patek Philippe watches and a one-of-a-kind ruby, Sotheby's New York is offering a dazzling collection of luxury items. Get those details when we come back. Welcome back. We're diving into some luxury goods from Hermes to Louis Vuitton to Chanel. A collection of designer handbags is up for sale at Sotheby's New York this month. Among the highlights are handbags by the French luxury leather goods maker Hermes. Leading the sale is a metallic silver Hermes Birkin. A Sotheby's official said it was made for the 2004 Athens Olympics. One was recently sold in Hong Kong for over $130,000. The limited production of Hermes bags is carefully managed to maintain rarity and demand. Another star of the lot is the Hermes Himalaya Kelly 32. It's expected to fetch over $75,000 at the sale. The Kelly handbag is a model designed in the 1920s. Behind me is the Himalaya Kelly 32. It's one of the top lots in our sale. The Himalayas are um, one of the most sought after bags in the secondary market, um, both for its rarity, its unique color gradation, and this bag. Another trend that we're seeing is larger bags are becoming much more popular. Sotheby's says the secondary market offers an advantage for Hermes lovers. Customers can get their desired bags here in different colors and sizes. The auction is open for bidding until next Tuesday. At another auction at Sotheby's New York, a Patek Philippe wristwatch may fetch up to $2 million. Known as a New York by day, it was created for an exhibition of watchmaking art in 2017. The mechanism includes a minute repeater and is also has world time. They did several creations just for that. They took up all of Cipriani and recreated a space sort of mimicking the boutique in Geneva. Uh, and they brought their artisans uh, and they had them set up showing how they did the different crafts that go into making, making a watch. Ms. Patek Philippe will go under the hammer this Friday. The Important Watches auction features both modern and vintage watches. Other highlights are a Rolex Paul Newman Daytona and an Omega Speedmaster presented to an Apollo 13 command module pilot. Sotheby's is also offering a unique gem, the largest ruby to ever come to market. The 55-carat stone was discovered last year in southern Africa. Sotheby's gem expert calls it a one-in-a-lifetime find. The ruby is expected to sell for $30 million. Along with it, the auction features a stunning 10-carat pink diamond known as the Eternal Pink. And there's a long list of studies that affirm the healthy effects of drinking tea. Let's learn more about this stimulating beverage. Here's Gina Marie with Strong Mind and Body.
apples, step aside for a moment, please. A cup of tea a day could keep the doctor away. Why? Because it supports heart and cardiovascular health. You should still keep eating apples, but when it comes to choosing beverages, your heart could benefit from tea. Tea is the world's second most common drink, so what makes it so special? First of all, we are talking about Camellia sinensis, the plant that gives us black, green, oolong and white teas. All of these teas come from the same plant. It's how the leaves are harvested and processed that makes them different. Tea leaves contain large amounts of polyphenols, which are antioxidants. They help to protect the cells against damage from free radicals, oxidative stress and related health problems, such as coronary heart disease and inflammation. Numerous studies have shown that drinking tea can benefit your heart health in several ways. There's an example in the European Journal of Preventative Cardiology. It reported that people who drink tea three or more times per week have improved cardiovascular health. That was compared with those who consume fewer. More than 100,000 people participated in the study and they were followed up for a median of 7.3 years. The authors noted that the benefits were better for green tea drinkers than for black tea and for men than for women. Those who made a habit of drinking tea were 20% less likely to develop heart disease and stroke, 22% less likely to die from heart diseases or stroke. Did you know that levels of good cholesterol decrease naturally as we age? Drinking tea may help with this decline. One study looked at how HDL levels changed over a six-year period among more than 80,000 people. Those who drank tea on a regular basis have a slower age-related decline in HDL than those who didn't consume it. The decline in HDL translated into an 8% decrease in cardiovascular risk. If you enjoy tea on a regular basis, don't stop. Your heart and cardiovascular system are benefiting from this habit. If tea hasn't been on your radar, consider enjoying three or more cups per week. This can help to lower your risk of cardiovascular problems. Of course, if you're adding loads of sugar, you aren't getting the same benefits, so keep that in mind. Got some animal stories for you. Sumatran tigers at the London Zoo are pedaling into summer. The cubs, Zach and Crispin, had their very first swimming lesson this week. The cubs, who will turn one later this month, played with giant floating balls under the watchful eye of parents Geisha and Asim. The zoo says tigers are excellent swimmers because of their webbed paws. Sumatran tigers are the world's rarest subspecies of tiger. There are only 300 estimated to be left in the wild. These big cats are threatened by hunters and habitat destruction in their native Indonesia. A wildlife officer in Colorado freed a wild bear from a truck. The animal got trapped inside while searching for dog food. A video shared on Twitter shows the bear inside the truck. The vehicle's interior was all damaged. The wildlife officer then opened the door and shooed the bear into the nearby woods. Colorado park rangers warned people not to leave food in cars as bears can smell it and they learn how to open doors. That's all for today's program. I'm Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.